Well, uh, let's look at our scriptures tonight in Judges chapter 7. Now, we're, we're covering Judges chapter 7 and Judges chapter 8. And so this is a, a lot of scripture. We're not going to read all of it. Um, a, a lot of the story you already know by heart. Uh, you know the story of Gideon. And Last week we, we talked about the fleece, how uh, the Lord came to Gideon, told him you, he was going to lead the Israelites out of uh, Midian, out of the bondage of Midian. And Gideon had a hard time believing that, so he asked God for a sign. He brought him a food, and God touched it, and it erupted in fire, and then the Lord was gone. And so he worshipped because he realized he was in God's presence. But then later on, he got scared again. He said, can you give me another sign? And he made the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. And Gideon said, oh, I got that backwards. Let's redo that. And he said, so this time, let's have the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And so he, he kind of tested the Lord, and finally he said, all right, I will, uh, I'll do it. And so this is where we, we come to in uh, chapter 7. And so uh, we're going to kind of read some of this, and then we'll skip some, and then we will, we'll read some more. And so if we look at Gideon, uh, Gideon, I said this all last week. I kept calling Judges Gideon, but uh, y'all know what I'm saying if I say it wrong. So, uh, so Judges chapter 7, verse 1 says, then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, remember, uh, Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel is uh, Gideon's new name after he tears down the, uh, the temple to Baal and the uh, Ashtaroth pole, uh, and it means let Baal contend with him. And so basically he's called the, you know, Baal beater, you know, or Baal defeater, let Baal fight for himself, is kind of what that name means. And so it says, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And so the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from the Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And so about two-thirds of his, of his group there, or uh, a, little, a little over half of his group there, uh, went away. And so uh, uh, he's left with 10,000 people. Now that's not a real good group whenever you're going against an army the size of Midian. And so uh, Gideon probably was getting a little bit scared. And he says, so he, the Lord comes to him, verse 4 says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I'll test them there for you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, you shall go with you. And anyone whom I say, you shall not go with you, shall not go. And so this is where he takes them down and um, whoever uh, lapped the water like a dog, he kept. And whoever scooped it with, uh, with his uh, hands, uh, he let go. And so there were 300 men who bit their faces down to the water and, you know, just lapped it up like a dog. They, uh, those are the ones that he kept. Now, as I was reading, some of these theologians were like, oh, well, this is symbolic of all these kind of things. And, you know, said that the ones who had scooped with the water were the most elite of the fighters because they were alert. You know, they were scooping up the water so they could keep an eye. The other ones were just clueless and inept, and they just stuck their face down in the water. They didn't know there might be an enemy across there. They didn't know. I think there's nothing here. I just think it's God just picked a really weird, arbitrary way of selecting Gideon's army. And so, anyway, 300 men that are left to fight uh, tens of thousands that um, uh, the Midianites had. And so uh, the Lord comes to Gideon in verse 9. says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. 
And Gideon said, no, Lord, you have shown me enough. I have the courage in my heart, and I'm going to go because you've told me to go. Is that what the scripture says? No, God said, if you're scared, go down to the camp, and they're going to have a message for you. So next thing you see, Gideon's going down to the camp. <laughs> what does that tell you about Gideon? He's still afraid, okay? So he's still needing some encouragement. And so they go down to the camp, and they hear these Midianites talking about this dream in verse 13. The Midianite tells another soldier, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade said, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. And so he, he went down, he heard this story, and finally he believed. So let's think about this. God came to him in the form of the messenger of the Lord, you know, the angel uh, of the Lord, which is uh, you know, pre-incarnate visitation of the Son of God. So the Son of God comes to Gideon and says, I want you to go. I'm going to give you Midian's hand. And, uh, I'm going to give you Midian into your hands. And he didn't believe him. And then he says, God, I, I, I need a sign. He gives him a sign. And then a little bit later, he's like, I still am afraid. Can you give me another sign? So God gives him another sign. He says, I'm still afraid. Can you give me another sign? So finally, whenever he hears a Midianite soldier t say to another one, God has given Midian into the hands of Gideon, he finally believes. And so it takes all this for Gideon to finally believe. And so he goes back to the camp. He, uh, uh, he, he tells them what to do. Um, they, they all grab jars, grab torches, they hide them inside the jars. And he says in verse 17, Look to me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And so that's what they did. They go and they surround the camp. Midian's down in a valley. They surround the camp. Um, <clears throat> they, uh, at the sign that Gideon gives them, they smash their jars, exposing their uh, torches. They blow trumpets and they yell for the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And God uh, uh, confuses the Midianites. They wind up killing each other. And in the midst of the confusion, they say, we just got to get out of here. So they start running away. And so that's the story of the battle. Okay. Um, and then in chapter 8, you begin to see things kind of falling apart. And so the, uh, the Israelites are chasing after the Midianites as they flee. And Gideon begins calling out the rest of Israel to come and to fight. And so uh, he does that at the end of chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, Ephraim comes to him and the, the, the tribe of Ephraim, they complain because he didn't call them before. And he kind of soft, you know, soft talks them and, and calms them down. Um, and then they uh, cross over the Jordan River. He and the 300 who were with him. They were, it says in verse 4, they were exhausted yet still pursuing uh, these two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. And so they come to Succoth, which is a town in, uh, uh, in Israel. And uh, <clears throat> they say, give us some bread because we're hungry. And the people of Succoth uh, kind of mouth off to him and say, we're not going to give you bread. You haven't kept, captured the kings yet. Why should we give you any bread? And so he says, all right, whenever I come back and I've got these kings, I'm going to whip you with briars. And so uh, not a very nice thing to say to somebody, but that's what he says. He goes up to the next city, which is Penuel. He says the same thing to them. They won't help him out. So he says, when I come back, I'm going to break down this tower. And so they go. Uh, they keep following Zeba and Zalmunna. Uh, they capture them. 
And then they bring him back. Uh, they go to Succoth and Penuel, and they say, look, we captured them, nana nana boo boo, and you didn't help us. And so they whip the men of Succoth with, with briars, and they tear down the tower in Penuel and kill all the men in the village. Pretty, pretty ruthless. All right, and then he comes back. He brings Zeba and Zalmunna with them. And he says, uh, verse 18, Where are the men that you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he turned to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And so he has vengeance for them killing his family. Then we get to verse 22. And the, uh, the men of Israel go to Gideon. They say, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So they want to make Gideon king. Okay, They, they realize they need a king, so they... They come and want to make him king. Gideon says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon sounds like he's saying the right thing. But then, verse 24, Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them to you. And they spread out a cloak. Every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels, about 42 pounds worth of gold earrings. So that's a lot of that's a lot of gold. Um, and so they, they give him these things. And in verse 27, Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Oprah. And all the Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. And they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So if you remember what an ephod was, that was a uh, garment with uh, some gold inlays and jewels that the priest wore, the high priest only the high priest wore it. Uh, whenever he went into the temple or the tabernacle at this time to make offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. So there's only supposed to be one ephod. It's only supposed to be worn by one man, the high priest. And it's only supposed to be worn in the presence of the tabernacle as they go into God to worship the Lord. Yet Gideon uh, has made a new one. And he's put it in his own house there at Oprah. And now Israel is coming to Gideon's ephod. And they are worshiping there. And so verse 29 in the rest of the story talks about the death of Gideon. It's a few other things. Uh, so Jeroboam, the son of Joash, which is Gideon, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Oprah of the Abizarites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, and made the Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And so the pattern continues again. Israel does what is evil on the side of the Lord. They go after the other gods and choose to worship them. And so that's, that is a summarized version of chapter 7. In chapter 8. And so let's look and see what it has to say to us because there's, uh, there's a lot in here. And uh, the, the lesson that we have today is really not one that's really encouraging, um, but there will be some encouraging things at the end. This is kind of more of a passage of warning. And it's going to really center around faith. And so I started out with this verse there at the top of your page. 
It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. See, in this world, we're going to come up against our own Midians. You know, there's going to be things that come against us, that oppress us, that uh, wreck our lives, that change everything. And the only thing that we're going to bring us through that and give us that kind of victory that we need to endure through those things is our faith. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how well off you are, how good looking you are. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of connections you have. None of those things can ultimately get you through the battles that you're going to face. And so our faith is what helps us overcome, uh, overcome the world. All right, I put this quote on here um, from Andrew Bonner, who was a, uh, a, a preacher from Ireland. He was a contemporary of D.L. Moody. He said, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Now, if you've ever <clears throat> knew something was coming up, something that was really tough, really difficult, maybe you're going through a really tough time or you knew a really tough time was coming, you might have kind of buckled down and really spent a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time in preparation. But once you kind of made it through that battle, a lot of times we kind of, we kind of take a break. You know, we're like, oh, I don't have to be as committed in prayer now because I made it through it. God took me through. And so what he's saying, he's like, hey, look, we got to be just as watchful after a victory as before the battle. And that's what got Gideon in trouble. So let's look at four snares for Christians. The first one is pride. Okay, In Proverbs 16, 18 there it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Um, and so pride is the precursor or the first step of destroying your life or a haughty spirit uh, before a fall. And sometimes we think, well, that's not true. I know prideful people all the time who are doing great. I mean, they've got all kinds of great and wonderful things. Um, well, you know, why aren't they falling? Why aren't they going to have? Why aren't they having destruction come in their life? Well, they may not be getting into this life, but it's going to come at some point. Um, a few weeks back, a month ago, or something like that, Hugh Hefner passed away, the founder of Playboy magazine, and uh, you know he lived a life of pride, a lot of opulence, a lot of life of pleasure, and everybody thought, you know, I mean, he had he had it all. But whenever he died, the moment that his life stopped on this earth, he met the Lord. And that was the first time that he ever bowed his knee to Jesus Christ. Because the scripture says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And so you're either going to confess him here willingly or you're going to confess him by force on the other side of death. And so pride did come before a fall. It just didn't come before a fall in this life. It came before a fall in the afterlife in the eternal in the eternal i guess for him not eternal life but eternal separation and so pride goes before destruction so gideon's failure began before the battle even started he was already moving in, in to steal some of the credit for the victory okay so all throughout this story god has said i'm going to give you the the battle i'm going to give you the victory in fact he says that um uh god says uh <clears throat> whenever he's limiting the people um, he says that uh, verse 2 the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand lest Israel boast over me saying my own hand has saved me so God's purpose in limiting the army down to 300 people was to make Israel have to admit that God had done this you know the, they didn't, he didn't want any question God delivered Israel not Gideon not his 10,000 men you know they didn't just do a really good job or have a really good day that day this obviously was God. Uh, Midian had 150,000 men, and they were defeated by 300 Israelites. 150,000 trained soldiers were defeated by 300 Israelites who most likely did not even have any swords. 
You know, didn't have any weapons, didn't have anything to fight against them. And so that was the purpose. But before the battle even starts, Gideon is moving in on God's territory. Verse 18 of chapter 7, he's telling him what to do. And he says, whenever we uh, blow the trumpets and on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Why does Gideon need to stick his name in there? Have you ever thought about that? Did God ever say, hey, I want you to make sure, you, you be sure and put your name next to mine. You know? You're, you, I, want, I want you to get some credit for this, so you, you put your name there. God never said that, did he? See, Gideon's already trying to work his way in there and try to get some of the, uh, some of the credit for this victory. And so he is already uh, moving, in, moving in. Another thing we need to see here, dealing with pride, Gideon's victory came through his weakness. Okay? The very fact that Gideon had no strength, had no ability, was what made it possible for God to work in his life and to make it possible for him to have this victory. His downfall came as a result of his strengths. Okay, once Gideon had strength, once he had power, once he had status, that's when all of his downfall started. That's when he, be he began basically setting himself as the king. And once he had the battle behind him and the soldiers fighting for him, that's when he began exerting power and authority and, and not treating uh, his fellow Israelites well. So as he's going through uh, the, the other side of the Jordan River, he comes to Succoth and he comes to Penuel. I mean, he... Uh, he fights them and, and kills them and destroys them? Is that the way that you treat family? No. These were fellow Israelites that Gideon is uh, treating this way. Okay, And so his strength was what led to his downfall. And so that leads us to this thought. Your strengths are more dangerous than your weaknesses. And a lot of times we think the opposite, right? We think, well, I can't do something because of my weakness. Or if I fail because of my weakness, this is all going to blow up my face and I just don't want to do that to the Lord's cause. In reality, if you look at the scripture, our strengths are more dangerous than our weaknesses because they can keep you from trusting in God's mercy. When was it that David ultimately messed up with the Lord? It was whenever God had given him victory over all of his enemies. And so at the time when the kings went out to war, David didn't have to go to war anymore. He had the best trained army in the land. God had given him peace, so he just kind of stayed back. And he enjoyed his strength, he enjoyed his position, and that's when he got in trouble. And so it wasn't until he stopped relying on God's strength and God's wisdom and God's leadership that he fell into that trap. And so our strengths can really be more dangerous than our weaknesses. Uh, so we've talked about pride is one snare for Christians. The next one is this, revenge. Revenge. Anybody ever had a problem with revenge? You wanted to get somebody back? I used to always tell people, I don't get even, I get better. And I don't know if that was a good thing. You know, that was really just me being a smart aleck because, uh, you know, I don't. I don't have. I can't do revenge anyway. But uh, so revenge. All right. Gideon is a vengeful, vengeful person. Um, Gideon left the uh, has left the guidance of God behind, and he's now following the guidance of his heart. So whenever he goes across the Jordan River, and he, uh, uh, well, let's back up first. First, Ephraim comes to him. Okay, the nation of Ephraim. They're mad because he didn't call them out to to fight. And so what does he say? He says, oh, well, you got to capture Obed. Let's see, who was it? Uh, Oreb and Zeb. Uh, you got to capture them. You know, you got your, you got your credit. You, you got your glory for capturing those kings. And, and so they were like, they were appeased and they went back. Well, what was the real answer? The real answer should have been, hey, Yahweh told me what to do. And so that's what I did. You know, that was, that was the real answer. But he tried to kind of smooth them over. And then when he crosses the river, he goes to Succoth and Penuel. Uh, and they don't help him out. Well, he should have just let the Lord take care of that and gone about doing what the Lord had told him to do. 
um, you know, just fight the battle that God called him to fight. But he took that vengeance because that was what was stirring up in his heart. And so we have to, we have to uh, guard our hearts. Jeremiah talks about our hearts. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So it means that our hearts can trick us. And that's true, right? You know, when you deal with teenagers, you see this all the time. You know, one day they're head over heels madly in love with this, you know, you know, guy is madly in love with this girl. And then she breaks up with him and breaks his heart. It's the end of the world until he sees this other girl over there two days later. Now he's madly in love with her. I mean, and it's just like flip, flop, flip, flop, you know. Our hearts are deceitful. They make us think, oh, I'm in love. I can't live without you. You're, my world has ended because this, wait, she's pretty. I'll go, you know. That's kind of how it, that's how it works, right? And so our hearts are deceitful. And the question posed by Jeremiah is, who can understand it? And so God then jumps in and answers. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so God says, hey, look, I know the heart. And I know your true heart. I know exactly what's going on in your, in your uh, heart of hearts, in your mind. And uh, I'm going to give to every man according to his deeds. And that goes for our life of faith. That also goes for people who have no faith. And so our, we have to guard against our hearts. Gideon has taken a, a position that is reserved for God alone. The position of judging enemies and repaying them for their wrongdoings. God responds to evil and vindicates the weak. And so it's God's responsibility to deal with evil people. He says in Deuteronomy 32, which precedes Gideon, so he should know this, <clears throat> Vengeance is mine and recompense, or repayment, for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their dooms come swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining bond or free. And so what that tells us is, hey, if you are a weak person, trust in the Lord. He's going to take care of your needs. Israel, Gideon had an army of 300 people. He didn't have to go around beating people up, trying to prove that he was in charge, or trying to prove that he was great. God had just given him a great victory. He could have just let God continue to give him the victory. Yet he decided to take revenge on his own. And so for us as believers, we must allow God to determine the right time and place for evil to be repaid. Everyone will face judgment and will give an accounting for their actions. And so we don't have to worry about payback. You know, uh, we're supposed to just love on our enemies. Jesus said, you know, if you're talking to, the, to his disciples, uh, if your enemy compels you to walk with him one mile, go with him too. And what that was is in that day and time, a Roman soldier could force a Jewish citizen to carry his armor with him one mile past the city walls. And so, say you're about to start your long journey, you know, up the, up the road to Antioch or something like that, you're a Roman soldier and leaving Jerusalem. Well, you go grab, you know, this Jewish boy over here and you say, here, carry my, my armor. So you put your breastplate on him and your, you know, all your armor, make him carry your sword and all kind of stuff. He's lugging that stuff a mile and they would put a post at a mile, a mile marker. And whenever they got to that mile marker, the Jewish person could drop it down and start hightailing it back to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying, hey, whenever you are compelled to walk one mile, go with him too. Go with him that extra mile. And so whenever you go that second mile, you are earning a hearing. You're earning an audience because, you know, the Roman soldier might not say anything at first. He's kind of like, well, I'm, I'm going to see how long this goes, you know. <laughs> and maybe this kid didn't see the marker. I'm not going to say anything. And then he gets about a, 
you know, another quarter of a mile, it's like, okay, this is getting weird. Get another half mile. There's something wrong with this kid. Maybe three quarters of a mile. What are you doing? And he has an opportunity to tell him, hey, you know, my, my Lord is Jesus. And he told me to love my enemies. And I know that Roman soldiers and Jewish citizens, we don't get along, but this is me demonstrating Christ's love to you. And so in our lives, we can do that as well. You might have that person at work that gets on your nerves and, uh, and you just can't stand hanging around with them. In fact, nobody can stand hanging around with them. And maybe you just spend some time hanging out with them for a little while, enduring their uh, obscenities, enduring their obnoxiousness, uh, you know, enduring those things for the sake of loving Him through Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> we let God take care of the payback because God is gonna, everybody's going to have to face judgment for their actions. Um, but uh, maybe they'll come to faith in Christ before then. Another snare for Gideon was celebrity. Um, <clears throat> celebrity. Uh, Gideon continued to take what was rightfully God's by taking for himself Israel's worship. So Gideon comes back home. Everybody's like, Gideon, Gideon. You know, they, they like did a, a parade through the streets of, of New York for him, you know, or, or, you know one, of the, one of the cities there. And, you know, they did ticker tape parades off the city walls and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and so he says, hey, give me, give me some of your gold. And they're like, yeah, we'll give you our gold. You be our king. You the man. You know, all kind of, they're all high-fiving him. And Gideon's thinking, man, this is great. Because remember what he said whenever God first came to him? He said, I'm the youngest in my family. I'm from a nobody clan. And my family is of no importance. Why are you choosing me? And so now the little boy from the sticks has risen to prominence to where everybody is chanting his name. Gideon, Gideon. And so he's like, I kind of like this, right? And so he, he kind of feigns a humility. You know, he's, he's doing this. He's like, no, 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 don't do that. No, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, he's like, he's like, he's wanting it, but he's pretending like he doesn't want it. He says, no, you give glory to God, but give me your gold. <laughs> Let God rule over you, but you can give me tribute. That's okay, you know? And so they make, him, they make him wealthy. He becomes a celebrity. All of a sudden, he's the hero who freed them. And so he continues taking right, what is rightfully God's by taking for himself Israel's worship. He does this in two ways. The first one is they want to make him king and treat him like a king. And so even though he says, no, let God rule over you, he lets them treat him like a king. Okay? And then the second thing is they worship at Gideon's house rather than at God's house. So if you remember what it said about the ephod, um, let's see, let me get back up there and, and find it. In verse 27 of chapter 8, Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So how much of the nation came to worship at Gideon's house? All Israel. And so Gideon's house replaced the tabernacle, is what that means. All Israel came to worship at Gideon's house rather than worshiping at God's house. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty huge statement. Not only had Gideon said, no, no, you serve God. We honor God. God is your king. But you can come worship at my house. You can come pay honor to me. You can come pay homage to me. You can worship my royal priestly robe whenever you come to my house. And so Gideon stole the worship that rightfully belonged to God. And so the one who was known as Jerubbabel, the, terror, the tearing down person of Baal's temple, has now erected his own temple in his own name. And so he has become, uh, in some ways, he has elevated himself even above Yahweh. And so the great irony is that Jeroboam goes from the defeater of Baal to leading Israel to worship something other than Yahweh. And so he, 
defeats Baal. He says, we're going to trust God. And then when it's all over, he says, you can follow and worship me. And so we as Christians must resist the temptation to have people praise, praise us for our good work. You know, we said, uh, when we were talking about earlier, um, you know, God, Jesus said, let, let everybody see your good works so that, they are, uh, so that they can see your good works and give glory to God as in heaven. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to God as in heaven. So our good works are supposed to point to God, not point to ourselves. We're not supposed to receive the accolades and, and enjoy the accolades because of what we have done. And so we have to resist that temptation because it is a huge temptation. And the fourth thing that we see these snares for Christians is prominence. Prominence. Gideon's success leads to his self-exaltation among the people of Israel. We've already kind of talked about that a little bit. Um, but he, he, he just exalts himself and brings all of Israel to himself. Um, success, power, and position are a snare waiting to pull a man's heart away from God. You know, in American culture... Success, power, and position are the things you strive for, right? Everybody wants to be the, the one step up the ladder. Um, and you, you, you do whatever you got to do to climb that ladder. And that's the, that's the name of the game in the United States. In fact, if you don't have an ambition to climb that ladder, we call you lazy. We call you not a hard worker. You know, even if you have attained a lot, you know, you're just a, you're not a, you're not, you don't have what it takes to get to the next level. Um, you know, we, we, it's kind of funny. Um, I heard it one time, I can't remember who it was. It was one of the presidential elections, but they were criticizing one of the presidential candidates, probably the Republican, because it was on TV. They were criticizing the, the presidential candidates for having ambition of wanting to be president. And, uh, but then, would you want to, would you want to elect a man who did not have ambition to be president? Who was just kind of like, yeah. Sure, I'll, I guess I'll accept the nomination for the Democratic Party of the President of the United States. <laughs> Is that the kind of guy you want going for president? You want somebody who wants to get in there and wants to do something, right? And so we say, no, we don't want anybody with him. We, 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 ambition is critical. We criticize ambition. Yet, we really, in our heart of hearts, we praise it. You know, we want people who, who strive for those kind of things. And so success, power, and position are really a snare waiting to steal our hearts away from God. King Uzziah is an example. God had blessed him and given him success and given him power against his enemies. And so 2 Chronicles 26 says, And King Uzziah's fame spread far, for he was marvelously, marvelously helped by God until he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. And so the strength that God gave him, he, he grew proud of, and that led to his fall. So we have to guard against uh, our position and status. Believers should pray for humility, especially when in positions of prominence. If you have a position of authority, a position of power, if you have people that work under you, uh, if you have children that you uh, lead in your household, if you have family members who look to you for leadership or guidance, we need to lead them with humility. Proverbs 30 talks about how to go about this. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so the Proverbs reminds us, we don't need to seek great wealth or luxury or power or position. We also don't need to go the opposite direction and just live in destitution and, and you know, make ourselves poor, make ourselves appear 
so humble. Oh, I'm so poor. I'm so mistreated. You know, I'm just so lacking in everything so that God can make me holy. There's nothing holy about hiding in a hermit hole in the side of a mountain somewhere and living a life of poverty like that. God never calls anybody to do that. But we need to keep an even keel and just say, Lord, give me what I need for the day. And so we've talked about some of these snares, but we also want to look and see how God can develop our faith. So I've got four things here of how God can develop faith. Because we do see some good things in Gideon's life, at least in the way that God acts in Gideon's life. The first one is this, is that God tests our faith. How does he develop our faith? Well, he tests our faith. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. Um, uh, if, if God is going to make us who he wants to be, then he first has to tear down some of the things we've put in our own life. He's got to break us down. He's got to get us to realize that we're not strong enough to do the things that he's called us to do, to be the people that he's called us to be. Um, and so God will test us, and he'll do so uh, to kind of make us realize we don't have what it takes. And that's what he did with Gideon. He, he whittled his army down from, uh, from 32,000 men to 300 men uh, just to show them, you know, you don't have what it takes. <laughs> you don't have the ability. Are you going to trust me? So God tests our faith. God encourages our faith. The best way to get God's guidance is through the Word of God, prayer, and sensitivity to the Spirit as we watch our circumstances. And so God encourages our faith. And so for Gideon, he, he encouraged him. He said, hey, go down to the camp. I want you to just hear what the Midianites think. I want you to hear what the Midianites believe in their camp. And so God encourages our faith. You know, sometimes we, uh, we get in a situation where we feel like we're down or feel like we were discouraged. And we need to go through uh, to God's word and the prayer and be involved in church and in ministry and allow him to encourage our faith through the ways that we interact with other people and the ways that we interact with him. God never just leaves us out there hanging. That's something we need to really realize. God will never just leave you out there hanging. He promises to be with you. And even if the road that you're walking is hard, even if it seems like it may never end, He will never leave you. Next, we see God honors our faith. This is a quote from Corey Ten Boom. Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. You think about that. That's such a good quote. Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable and receives the impossible and as we've been talking with brother david's been preaching on sunday mornings on hebrews chapter 11 that's exactly what hebrews 11 says i mean that right there is a summary of hebrews chapter 11 um seeing the invisible believing the unbelievable and receiving the impossible god honors our faith and the good thing is you don't have to have a lot of it how much faith did gideon have about that much <laughs> you know and if god had given him two more days he probably would have had to have another sign you know to to trust god but he finally is like okay let's go let's do it and, you know i believe god right now let's go do it but you know we don't have to have a lot of faith how much faith did god did jesus say we needed a mustard seed the faith of a mustard seed have you ever seen a mustard seed you gotta have really good eyesight to see a mustard seed right you can get about 300 mustard seeds in a little vial about that big they are super tiny and God, Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say that that mountain be tossed into the sea. And it'll, it'll do it. So we just have to have, to have a tiny bit of faith for God to work in our life. Um, you know, one day uh, a man came to, uh, to Jesus and said, you know, if, if you're willing, you can heal me. And, uh, you know, Jesus says, all you got to do is have faith. And he says, I do. I have faith, but help my, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And so Jesus acted on what faith he did have, and he gave him healing. 
And so we need to just work with what we've got and allow God to do something great in it. And the last thing we see here is that God never forces our faith. And Joshua, whenever Joshua was talking to the, uh, to the Israelites before he, before he left, and he said, uh, choose this day whom you will serve. And so we have to choose who we're going to serve. God's not going to force you to believe in him. God's not going to force you to live by faith. And that's, that's the great thing about our God is he invites us into a relationship with him, but he doesn't force us into a relationship with him. Because God wants us to love him for him. He doesn't want us to love him uh, for the good things he gives or because he's got you know, a, a sword at the back of our neck forcing us to do it. You know, that's not who God is. God is a God who invites us into a relationship. It's the same way, you know, I'm glad that Melody married me because she loved me, because she wanted to marry me, not because, you know, she was forced to, required to. You know, it wasn't a reverse shotgun wedding. And, uh, you know, she, she probably would have bailed if it was that case, right? Uh, you know, there was no forcing the issue. She, by some miracle of the Lord, if you, want to believe, if you don't believe in miracles, there's one right there. By some miracle of the Lord, she said yes, and uh, she... And I got her to the altar before she could change her mind, you know. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's how it works. Uh, but we have to choose the Lord. And Gideon, over and over and over, had to choose to trust God. And even though God had to kind of push him along the way, Gideon still had to make that effort to trust. And that still had to make that effort to believe. And so uh, our encouragement for today is just to know that, that what you're going through uh, is not the end of the story. You know, whatever your struggle, your trial, whatever your median is right now, that's not the end of the road. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, the end of the road is the kingdom of God, the eternal dwelling place with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, th this world can beat you up pretty hard, and uh, it can drag you down. But Jesus will always be on the other side, caring, encouraging you, leading you, guiding you, and um, ultimately we know that we can have victory through Jesus Christ. And uh, if, you know, if you ever are not sure about that, just read the second part of Romans chapter 8, and uh, you'll be hurrahing uh, by the end of it, and um, you'll be ready to go tackle the world. So um, God never forces our faith. He lets us choose Him. And He said that, proved that in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's a promise right there that... Uh, those of us who choose him will never die. We'll have everlasting life. Life that starts now and lasts forever. So hopefully this is an encouragement to you. Also a challenge to you to watch out for these things. Pride and revenge and celebrity and prominence. And of course, as we look through scripture, we can find a million other things that are snares to Christians as well. But these are the ones that we see in the life of Gideon. And so, uh, so my encouragement to you tonight is be a Gideon, but don't be a Gideon. Okay, <laughs> be a be a in the middle Gideon. Don't be a first Gideon or a last Gideon. Just be that little part in the middle. 